Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, we've got a lot to talk about today. Welcome to the program. Uh, I want to start out with what happened yesterday. I think this is a really important uh, thing to discuss. And also the inescapable truth about right-wing billionaires and Donald Trump. But I wanted to start out by pointing out what actually happened yesterday, because I've been watching the media and I've not been seeing anybody actually talking about this, which I find frankly shocking. We start out with the big lie, all right? The big lie is that there's voter fraud in the United States. There isn't, We've, there's never been any study ever with any credibility at all in the history of the United States, or at least in the history of my lifetime that shows that there is any kind of substantial number of people who are illegally voting, who are not citizens or who are voting twice or who are voting in the names of people who are dead, things like that. George W. Bush spent two and a half years looking for this. Seven of his, remember, seven of his federal prosecutors, his U.S. attorneys, refused to drop everything and look for voter fraud, and he fired them. Remember that? It was a big scandal in 2002. And he ultimately had all 100 U.S. attorneys at the top of their list, you know, hiring staff to find voter fraud in their district, in the northern part of Alabama, in the southern part of New York, in the eastern district of Colorado, whatever it may be. He had attorneys on it. And they spent years and millions, tens of millions of dollars trying to find voter fraud in the United States. They examined over a billion votes over a decade, and they found 31 cases. 31. And the majority of those were people who didn't realize they were committing voter fraud, in quotes, because they were people who either didn't realize that having moved out of state, you know, they got an absentee ballot and they still continue to vote where they used to live. That was like one or two of those 31 people. But the majority of them were people who had felony convictions, who lived in states where felons can't vote, which is only, you know, about a third of our states. And they didn't realize that that was the law in those states. The number of people who voted who weren't citizens was zero. I mean, what person who's in this country illegally is going to show up at a federal you know, facility or a state-run facility, voting facility, and say, hi, I'm here you know, to vote? Nobody. 
So we've got this big lie that the GOP has been pushing for 40 years. Donald Trump took that big lie and put it on steroids. He took a little balloon and pumped it into a weather balloon. I mean, he just, into the Graf Zeppelin, he blew this thing way up and said, well, not only that, and he said, and he did this five years ago. When he started during the primary, when he started talking about how the whole system is rigged. And then four years ago, after he won the election, when he said that Hillary Clinton got three million votes that were illegally cast. He said it during the primary. When he lost the New Hampshire primary, he said it was because black people were, were coming in buses from Massachusetts up to New Hampshire to vote against him. These were all lies. And he continues to promote this lie, as does virtually the entire Republican Party, that there was, quote, voter fraud. And therefore, there's like Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley or, or Kevin McCarthy or yesterday Jim Jordan kept saying, but we have concerns. That's horse crap. They know exactly what they're doing. They're using this myth of voter fraud to pass more and more restrictive laws in the states to make it harder and harder for low-income people, black people, Hispanic people, students, and elderly people to vote, because those people all tend to vote Democratic. It's just that simple. But as a consequence of all these people believing that the election was stolen from them, because they're listening to right-wing hate radio, they're watching Fox News, they're listening to Donald Trump, and they're listening to their elected Republican representatives who are telling them, we, we should all have big concerns here. These people stormed the Capitol building literally to kidnap or kill members of Congress. And 197 members of Congress voted to say that's just fine. You get that? That's just fine. No problem. We're not going to impeach the guy who told the lie, who expanded the lie, who amplified the lie, because it's our lie is what these Republicans, these 197 Republicans who voted to acquit or not to impeach Donald Trump and the House of Representatives. That's what's going on. You know, Voltaire, back in uh, 1765, in a booklet, essentially, that he wrote called Questions sur les Miracles. I can't speak French, forgive my terrible pronunciation. But basically, questions about miracles. He said, and this is the English translation, I, I have the French here, but my French is so terrible, I won't inflict it on you. Anyhow, he said, Formerly there were those who said, You believe things that are incomprehensible, inconsistent, impossible, because we have commanded you to believe them. Go then and do what is unjust, because we command it. Such people show admirable reasoning. This is Voltaire, the 18th century philosopher. Truly, he continues, whoever can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. If the God-given understanding of your mind does not resist a demand to do what is impossible, then you will not resist a demand to do wrong to that God-given sense of justice in your heart. As soon as one faculty of your soul has been dominated, other faculties will follow as well. And all this derives, Voltaire said, from those crimes of religion which have overrun the world. But his point, if somebody can make you believe something that's absurd, they can make you commit atrocities. And that's what happened 
on January 6th is people who were believing these 197 members of Congress who continue to tell them the election was stolen, showed up at the Capitol and said, okay, that's it, we're taking over. And apparently it was an extensive conspiracy. And as Ayanna Presley's staff, they had put panic buttons throughout, you know, in every part, in every office, because you never know, you know, people can walk in, but you've got to go through the metal detector, but people can walk in off the street and say, I'd like to speak to my representative or, or somebody there. And, you know, it could be a crazy person. So they've got panic buttons. Well, when as they were moving around chairs and water coolers to try to barricade the doors as the traitors, as the insurrectionists were storming the Capitol, they discovered that all the panic buttons had been removed. I mean, this is nuts. This is insane. I don't know how to describe it beyond that. It's just, it's like, you know, where do you go with that? This is the Tom Hartman Program. You can help America return to democracy by telling friends and family how to listen to this and other great progressive programs. Tag your it. Virginia, in Bassett, Virginia, you have uh, called in before. Virginia, what's on your mind today? Yes, Professor Thomas. I have a Hartman, I'm sorry, Tom Hartman. I have a question. Can Trump give out pardons after having been impeached? And if the Senate convicts Trump for incitement of insurrection, does the Senate have the authority to just send Trump to jail? The Senate does not have the authority to send him to jail. And whether he can issue pardons between now and whenever the Senate trial happens is something that nobody knows for sure because it's never been adjudicated. You know, nobody's ever figured that out. So... We're not quite sure, <laughs> Virginia, is the answer, I guess, to the question of whether or not Donald Trump can do pardons. Can he go answer to jail? Question? Can he go to uh, jail? He could go to jail, but it wouldn't be the Senate who would send him there. It would have to be, you know, a prosecutor, whether a federal prosecutor or a state prosecutor. There would have to be a specific crime laid out. There's little doubt in my mind that Donald Trump is facing absolute financial ruin and the probability of going to jail, along with his children. This little merry band has been engaged in a massive grift for years and for decades. And we just kind of have to keep that in mind. Virginia, thank you very much for the call. Dion in Chicago. Hey, Dion, what's on your mind today? Yeah, I know this may be a little extreme, but, like, I know the treasury, I mean, there's uh, codes for trees, and then, like, could the insurrectionists also be charged for a biological weapon for carrying a virus on purpose to do harm to others? That's an interesting question, Jim, and frankly, I'm wondering if the Republican members of Congress who refused to wear masks when they were in lockdown with other people, with the Democrats, thus causing now three Democrats to test positive, and, uh, and the husband of a fourth, Ayanna Presley's uh, uh, husband, is now testing positive. He was there, apparently, in, in, in that lockdown. Um, you know, what level of culpability, what level of responsibility do these guys have? Again, you know, this is the kind of stuff that's never been tried in a court of law, so we don't know. But Nancy Pelosi is putting fines into place right now for people who refuse to wear masks and substantial fines 
for people who are refusing to use the magnetometer, who are refusing, you know, who are essentially trying to carry guns into the Capitol building, because that's what's going on. And we should just call it what it is. But, you know, how that's going to shake out, Dion, I don't have an answer for that. Dion, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. We'll be back. I'll be continuing. I've got, you know, a little more rant here, and then we'll be picking up the phone calls after the break at the bottom of the hour. Stick around. So Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta, is tweeting about how it took eight days for a member of her family to get a COVID test back. And during that time, that person, who it turns out was positive, they didn't know for eight days, that person infected three other people in their family. Had they simply known, they could have quarantined that person. Even Mick Mulvaney, you know, right-wing crazy, former Tea Party congressman, you know, acolyte of the Koch brother. Even Mick Mulvaney is saying this is unacceptable during a pandemic when his own kids couldn't get tested, or one of his kids. The other one got tested and it took seven days to get the results back. He says this is unacceptable. We've got a whole video about why this is, where the ideology that's driving, this is beyond incompetence. This is actually ideological. A new video out about this, you can find it over at TomHartman.com. I also wanted to talk about the rant that I posted today over at TomHartman.Medium.com. And it's titled, actually, The Inescapable Truth About Right-Wing Billionaires and Trump. And I start out by asking the question, you know, or, you know, first of all, pointing out that there's a bunch of very, very wealthy people who have been subsidizing Donald Trump and his merry band of supporters in the Republican Party. And, you know, why would they do this? Why would these very wealthy people play a game of Russian roulette with the United States of America and its citizens? Why would they take such a chance on destroying democracy all around the world? Because if American democracy falls, the democracies of a lot of other countries are going to follow right behind it. We are the standard. We are the example for the world, or at least we were. So why would these right-wing billionaires be doing this and multimillionaires? They proclaim that it's about libertarian or conservative ideology, but I think not. I don't think it's ideology. I think it's that they want to maintain the Reaganomics, trickle-down, austerity, neoliberal economic system that the United States flipped into in 1981. We were running on basic classic economics, Adam Smith economics from 1933 until 1980. And and things were working pretty good. And the rich were paying their fair share of taxes. A third of all tax revenues during the Eisenhower, uh, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Carter administrations, Ford, a third of all of the revenue coming into the federal government was coming from corporate taxes. Right now it's around 6%. Wealthy people as they started to make literally tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars a year, it pushed them into the top tax bracket where they were paying, at the time that Reagan came into office in 1981, they were paying 74% income tax. 
So rather than do that, they would just keep the money in their companies and build their companies and pay their employees well, because, hey, you know, what else can you do? And Reagan dropped that top tax rate, both for capital gains and for ordinary income, down to 25%, and suddenly it was off to the races. According to the Rand Corporation, $50 trillion that today would be in the pockets of working class people instead went into the pockets of the very, very rich. I mean, it's mind boggling. I've got a link to that uh, Rand Corporation study in this article over at uh, tomharbin.medium.com. Thus, as a result of this, Stadia, you know, the big statistics sites on the internet, said, and I quote, the number of billionaires in the U.S. has increased tenfold during this time. They were looking, this was published in 2013, and it was looking at 1987, the last year of the Reagan administration, or next to the last year, until 2012. Okay. The number of U.S. billionaires in the U.S. has increased tenfold during this time of 87 to 2012, from 41 billionaires in 1987 to 425 billionaires in 2012. Well, today there's over 650 billionaires in the United States. And here's what they want to keep in place. Number one, there's two ways you can tax the money that people get. If it's ordinary income, that's called the income tax. If it's you know, wages from working your, your brain or your, or your muscles. If it's interest income or dividend income, you pay a capital gains tax on profits that you make on that income. It's a different kind of tax. Well, the capital gains tax is lower than the ordinary income tax. And Donald Trump had promised a couple of months ago that if he remained president after January 20th, he would lower the capital gains rate to 15%. Secondly, average Americans pay a tax every year on their wealth. The largest store of wealth that most working class people have, 66% of Americans, working class Americans own their own homes. That's their largest store of wealth. And every year, people like you and me who own their homes, or if you're renting, you're actually paying the same tax in your rent, embedded in your rent, pay a wealth tax. We pay a tax on our wealth. I, you know, we pay a percentage of the value of our houses to the state and local government as a wealth tax. So how much is the wealth tax on a billionaire's money bin on their investment portfolio? Zero. There's no wealth tax on multimillionaires and billionaires on their asset base, on their wealth. Yeah, they may pay some property tax on their homes, but their homes are typically such a tiny slice of their overall portfolio that it's relatively meaningless. So right now, the situation is that billionaires pay virtually very, very low income tax rates. Many of them pay none, no income tax. Look at Donald Trump. And they pay no wealth tax. Whereas working class people are paying a solid income tax in the 20% range, plus a percentage of tax on FICA on Social Security, plus a wealth tax every year in the form of property taxes. And the billionaires support Trump because they want to keep it that to way. The Tom Hartman program. It's all about the money. I'll be back with more news of the day and your calls right after this. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out 
for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Our book club selection today is Raghuram Rajan. It's titled The Third Pillar, How Markets and the State Leave the Community Behind. This is from the preface. We're surrounded by plenty. Humanity has never been richer as technologies of production have improved steadily over the last 250 years. And it's not just the developed countries that have grown wealthier. Billions across the developing world have moved from stressful poverty to a comfortable middle-class existence in the span of a generation. Income is more evenly spread across the world than at any other time in our lives. For the first time in history, we have it in our power to eradicate hunger and starvation everywhere. Yet even though the world has achieved economic successes that would have been unimaginable even a few decades ago, some of the seemingly most privileged workers in developed countries are literally worried to death. Half a million more middle-aged, non-Hispanic white American males died between 1999 and 2013 than if their death rates had followed the trend of other ethnic groups. The additional deaths were concentrated among those with a high school degree or less, and largely due to drugs, alcohol, and suicide. To put these deaths in perspective, it's as if 10 Vietnam Wars were simultaneously taking place, not in some faraway land, but in homes in small town and rural America. In an era of seeming plenty, a group that once epitomized the American dream seems to have lost hope. The anxieties of the moderately educated, middle-aged white male in the United States are mirrored in other rich, developed countries in the West, though perhaps with less tragic effects. The primary source of worry seems to be that moderately educated workers are rapidly losing, or are at risk of losing, good middle-class employment. And this has grievous effects on them, their families, and the communities they live in. It is widely understood that job losses stem from both global trade and the technological automation of old jobs. Less well understood is that technological progress has been the more important cause. Nonetheless, as public anxiety turns to anger, radical politicians see more value in attacking imports and immigrants. They propose to protect manufacturing jobs by overturning the liberal rules-based post-war economic order, the system that has facilitated the flow of goods, capital, and people across borders. There is both promise and peril in our future. The promise comes from new technologies that can help us solve our most worrisome problems like poverty and climate change. Fulfilling it requires keeping borders open so that these innovations can be taken 
to the most underdeveloped parts of the world, even while attracting people from foreign lands to support aging rich country populations. The peril lies not just in influential communities not being able to adapt and instead impeding progress, but also in the kind of society that might emerge if our values and institutions do not change as technology disproportionately empowers and enriches some. Every past technological revolution has been disruptive, prompted a societal reaction, and eventually resulted in societal change that helped us get the best out of technology. Since the early 1970s, we've experienced the information and communications technology revolution, the ICT revolution. It built on the spread of mass computing made possible by the microprocessor and the personal computer, and now includes technologies ranging from artificial intelligence to quantum computing, touching and improving areas as diverse as international trade and gene therapy. The effects of the ICT revolution have been transmitted across the world by increasingly integrated markets for goods, services, capital, and people. Every country has experienced disruption, punctuated by dramatic episodes like the global financial crisis in 2007-2008 and the accompanying Great Recession. We are now seeing the reaction in populist movements of the extreme left and right. What has not happened yet is the necessary societal change, which is why so many despair of the future. We are at a critical moment in human history when wrong choices could derail human economic progress. This book is about the three pillars that support society and how we get to the right balance between them so that society prospers. Two of the pillars I focus on are the usual suspects, the state and markets. Many forests have been consumed by books on the relationship between the two, some favoring the state and others markets. It is the neglected third pillar, the community, the social aspects of society that I want to reintroduce into the debate. When any of the three pillars weakens or strengthens significantly, typically as a result of rapid technological progress or terrible economic adversity like a depression, the balance is upset and society has to find a new equilibrium. The period of transition can be traumatic, but society has succeeded repeatedly in the past. The central question in this book is how we restore the balance between the pillars in the face of ongoing disruptive technological and social change. I will argue that many of the economic and political concerns today across the world, including the rise of populist nationalism and radical movements on the left, can be traced to the diminution of community. The state and markets have expanded their powers and reached in tandem and left the community relatively powerless to face the full and uneven brunt of technological change. Importantly, the solutions to many of our problems are also to be found in bringing dysfunctional communities back to health not in clamping down on markets. This is how we'll rebalance the pillars at a level more beneficial to society and preserve the liberal market democracies many of us live in. The book, The Third Pillar, How Markets in the State Leave the Community Behind. The Capitol Police, well, the headline over at National Public Radio, for God's sake, is ex-Capitol Police Chief says request for National Guard denied six times in riots. They're quoting the uh, former chief of the National Police, Stephen Sund. You know, six times we tried to get help and it was denied. Hunter over at Daily Kos, basically compiling some reporting done by the Washington Post. This is from the Washington Post, actually. This is from the FBI's report to the Capitol Police and to the Trump administration about what might happen. The FBI sent the Trump administration and the Capitol Police 
a series of examples of people who were intending violence against the United States. Here's one, quoting one of the guys who was one of the ringleaders of this thing, quote, Congress needs to hear glass breaking, doors being kicked in, and blood from their BLM and Pantifa slave soldiers being spilled. Get violent. Stop calling this a march, a rally, or a protest. Go there ready for war. We get our president or we die. So, you know, once again, we now have confirmation from the senior levels of the FBI that they were warning the administration this was going to happen. And the administration, in response to that, said to the National Guard, you may not attend. Said to Muriel Bowser, the D.C. police chief who wanted to send police officers to this, you may not send police officers. This is federal property. We control it. And keep in mind, as Chris Hayes pointed out on his show last night, when these traitors, when these rioters were dragging three police officers out of the Capitol and beating them with flags on the steps of the Capitol building, that was 15 minutes after Donald Trump had done his so-called let's calm them down speech where he said, we love you, you're wonderful people. It was after that. This continued for a couple of hours after that. It's just amazing. Meanwhile, IPS Research has just come out with a study highlighting the 63 billionaires worth $243 billion who bankrolled Trump's re-election bid. And, uh, you know, asking, will there be any accountability? They just issued a press release. They go through these, uh, the top 10 billionaires who donated to the Trump Victory Fund Gas pipeline magnate Kelsey Lee Warren, worth $2.9 billion, gave donations totaling $2.2 million. Retired CEO of Marvel Entertainment Isaac Perlmutter is worth $5.8 billion. He donated $1.8 million. Telecommunications mogul Kenny Trout, worth $1.5 billion, donated $1.8 million. Biotech investor Robert Duggan, worth $2.5 billion, donated $1.6 million to the Trump Victory Fund. Casino magnate Steve Wynn, worth $3 billion, contributed $1.5 million. It goes on. You probably don't recognize most of these names. Frankly, I don't recognize most of these names. Steve Schwartzman is obviously in here. Robert Wood Johnson IV of the Johnson & Johnson fortune is in this list. John Paulson and some of these others who are more well-known. But the bottom line is, this was not an accident. None of this stuff has been an accident. Since Donald Trump was declared president, with a little help from his friends around the world, from Saudi Arabia and Russia and Israel and apparently other countries as well, since Donald Trump was declared president in 2016, we have been in a straight line to destroy the United States government, to destroy the idea of democracy that is the rule by the people. The first three words of the Constitution, we the people. To stop that and replace it with oligarchy, ruled by the rich, in a militaristic, fascistic context. That is absolutely what's been going on for four years. I've been pointing it out on this program for four years. I'm kind of gratified. In fact, last night we were watching the news, and I don't recall if it was Chris Hayes or somebody else just kind of going off on this. And Louise turns to me and says, you were saying this two years ago, you know, three years ago. I mean, you were pointing out that this is the direction all this is heading. And finally, finally, you know, the national media gets a clue. Yeah, thank God. Now we even have like John Tester, the senator from Missouri, saying, you know, if you want to kick Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz out of the Senate, fine with me.
We have a conspiracy. We have conspirators. That's what's going on. And, you know, we need to point it out and we need to own up to it and we need to do something about it. We need to guarantee that this never happens again. And frankly, I think the biggest problem that we have here now is that the big lie, Donald Trump's big lie, that the election was stolen from him. And this, again, I go back to the hearings that we heard, the House Rules Committee, where the chair of the House Rules Committee was begging Republicans, Jim Jordan and others, was begging them to simply say, please, look into the camera and say the election wasn't stolen. And none of them would do it. Instead, they would say, oh, well, you know, we acknowledge that Joe Biden is going to be installed as president in a week. Well, that's a very different thing from saying the election was not stolen. And they're going to continue to raise money on this big lie. They are going to continue to take this big lie back to their individual state legislatures and those that are controlled by the Republican Party and pass laws that make it harder for people of color, young people, older Social Security voters to exercise their right to vote. There's going to be a major crackdown on voting rights in red states across the country and in those purple states that are still controlled by Republican legislatures because of gerrymandering. This is coming. Count on it. So let's pick up some phone calls here. Bruce in Portland. Hey, Bruce, what's on your mind? Yeah, it's official, Tom. We've officially, as of January 6th, Trump's failed coup attempt, uh, it's official. We've entered the with the crazy, mentally deranged right-wing radicals. We're entering the outer limits, the twilight zone, two shows from the past. But I was wanting to know, what would your opinion be on why doesn't the National Guard mobilize right now, get ready, have armored water cannon tanks for these extreme nutbags that are going to be on the nation's capital Sunday and then for Inauguration Day. Had we had one or two water tanks there on our nation's capital last Wednesday, I believe that would have helped deter the radical, extreme, murderous thugs. We need armored water tanks, and we need them now at all of our capitals in preparation. It may well be, Bruce. We know that the National Guard is now planning on showing up, you know, 10 to 15,000 of them. And I'm guessing that they're not going to come without their hardware. But that said, the one thing I'd push back on is, you know, you're calling these folks crazy. They are not crazy. They believe their president. They believe Senator Cruz. They believe Kevin McCarthy, that the election was stolen. And they believe that they are patriots standing up for their country when their country was hijacked by, you know, Democrats who stole the election. This is what they believe. They read it on Facebook. They see it on Twitter. They hear it on Fox News every night. They are being told this by politicians. You know, you or I would believe it if we were being told the same thing by Joe Biden. You know, I don't think that we do ourselves any good by assuming that they're crazy or stupid or deranged or something. That's not what's going on here. Bruce, thanks a lot for the call. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Stick around. Back with more of your calls in just a moment. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. 
But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Robert in Brooklyn, New York, listening on SiriusXM. Hey, Robert, what's up? I was just wondering how come no one is mentioning the impact of the recent events on the children of the United States, because I've mm. actually seen the impact on them, and I work in education, and I had to literally spend so many moments explaining to them what's actually happening and so forth. And we have a group of young children coming up right now that are just basically perplexed by everything that's going on around them, trying to understand the behavior of the adults, trying to just make sense of the contradiction that they see at this level at such a high position and the behavior of the adults and so forth. It's quite frightening to our young people across the country from what I am witnessing from place to place and so forth, the way the adults are acting. The confusion that's being created is not just hitting these other people that are so taken over by and, and lost their abilities to think for themselves, but overall, the children, the children that are that are within this and are looking at what's happening. And Give me an example. Children. For example, explaining how adults would actually destroy the capital. One child was asking me, why would they want to destroy our capital? You know, isn't that our own capital? Why would they want to do that? And one said to me today, you mean that's how people behave when they've been lied to for so long? That's what my dad wow. said. Are these, so are, these are you a teacher? These are students? Yeah, these are just basically students, and when they write about the experiences that they see and so forth, I just said to them, well, look, you better write about this, because in the future, I believe someone may try to say that what you saw was not really what you saw. But um, hmm. plain and simply, I can definitely tell you that if any adults are listening, whichever side that you're on, the old saying is, if you're adults and you're having differences, you don't have them in front of the children. But right now, I am telling you, the young people are watching. It depends on the age group. Some age group really find that the adults are acting more like kids than the kids themselves and are just looking on and just like, what's going on here? What sense does this make? They cannot make sense out of what they're seeing. Yeah, and it's an amazing. I mean, the ground keeps shifting over the weekend. The Pentagon issued a press release about the events, and they referred to the riots, to the siege of the Capitol building as 
First Amendment protests. That's now the official Trump administration phrase being used to describe this. First Amendment protests. It's insane. Robert, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. It should give us all deep thought. I appreciate it. Mark in Philadelphia. Hey, Mark, what's up? Hey, how you doing, Tom? I don't think the First Amendment gives you the right to incite a riot and tell people to go storm the Capitol, huh? No, Anyhow, it uh, my point is, can he be charged by individual states? You had individual state representatives in that Capitol, senators and congressmen from Pennsylvania, Georgia, all the states. And he has a habit of, you know, pardoning himself for federal crimes. Why doesn't individual states charge him with endangering the lives of individual senators, individual congressmen, trespassing on the Capitol, breaking and entering on the Capitol, terroristic threats, and intent to murder Mike Pence? Each state should charge this guy, Giuliani, Don Jr. I mean, everything's on videotape. In a court of law, you got a guy using the word, let's go to combat, let's storm the Capitol. He wouldn't, in a court of law, it wouldn't stand up. And if every state in this country filed charges against him for endangering their elected representatives, he'd go to prison. He'd have to defend 50 lawsuits. The Republican senators should be charged for interfering in other states' elections. They have no constitutional right to determine an election. The electors did that. They're all backing him. They bail him out of extorting the Ukraine. They bail him out of asking Russia to... Hillary Clinton warned us about this. Five years ago, Hillary Clinton told America this was going to happen. He was going to use fake religion and fake patriotism and fake everything. He was going to spin everything. He was going to be the Wizard of Oz. He was going to use right-wing radical news outlets, exactly what you were talking about. Rush Limbaugh, Fox News, Newsmax, they're all actors. There's no reporters at those places. They're paid actors. They are getting rich off of Donald Trump. If Trump issues a federal pardon to these, what the Pentagon is referring to as First Amendment protesters, then the only option would be for the states to do what you're describing. And yes, that could be done. There's a patchwork quilt of rules and constitutional provisions and norms from state to state. New York, for example, just had to pass a new, uh, I don't recall if it was a law or an amendment to their constitution, that eliminated double jeopardy provision that would have prevented the New York state from prosecuting somebody who had gotten a pardon for a federal crime. Other states may have to change their laws. Other states probably could very easily do it. So it's going to be up to the individual state attorneys general how they deal with this. But we have to have enforcement of the law. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Hey, Tom Hartman here. Just wanted to give you a heads up that we have an absolutely free newsletter. You can subscribe to it over at TomHartman.com. And every day, Sue, who works on our newsletter, puts together what we call Sue's Daily Stack. It's literally a link to every story I have referenced on the air in the program. And it's just absolutely extraordinary and something I think you'll find really useful. So check it out at TomHartman.com. David in Spotswood, New Jersey. Hey, David, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Hi. Just like other callers, I, too, think we've crossed another paradigm. Except I don't think we, who are sensible, should be talking about how bad Donald Trump 
Ted Cruz and then Senator Hawley are, I think we should be looking at the person we voted for, who's Joe Biden, who immediately said he wanted unity. And then he says after the coup that he wants sensible, principled Republican Party. I mean, why not have a sensible, principled progressive party or a Bullworth party from Teddy Roosevelt? Well, that's not what he was talking about. He was talking about the Republican Party, and he was basically noting that the Republican Party seems to have been taken over by fascists, and he would like to have back some Republicans who are reasonable. I think it's a fantasy, frankly, at this point. I think they've gone over the edge. I, I think, I think we're America in, a time where we have to... in the process of slipping into fascism, and if it's not arrested quickly, it's, it's going to get worse. But, David, you were going to say something else. I said I think we're in a time where we have to have a plan to de-radicalize the 74 million people that voted for him. And, and if we look to history, including our own, there was a coup in the 1930s, which was promulgated by Roosevelt, by having big government, by ushering in the New Deal. And then there was no right. second coup. Yeah, there was a group of Republican-associated industrialists. The Pond family. That generation's version of our right-wing billionaires who tried to hire Smedley Butler and a right. group, of, a veterans group that had about 100,000 members, which had already signed up for this, by the way. The veterans group was you know, in on this. And they tried to hire Smedley Butler, who at that time was like Eisenhower was after World War II. You know, this was after World War I, and Smedley Butler was a famous Marine general, and he was the most, probably the most famous military officer in America, and widely revered. And they tried to hire him to lead these troops into the White House to kidnap or kill Franklin Roosevelt, and he blew the whistle on them. And thus we averted a coup in the 1930s, a fascist coup in the 1930s. And of course, there was the fascist coup that happened in 1860 that we refer to ultimately as the Civil War. This is our third try, each one 80 years apart. No coincidence, in my opinion. Am I making your point, David? Right. And, and Stanley Butler spoke out of against it as well. Yeah. I just think a great a, a de-radicalization program would be a guaranteed jobs program, increased all the things that Senator Sanders wants. I agree. I agree. And I've written about this and I've talked about this on this program. When you gut the economy of a country, you create radicalism. It can be left-wing radicalism, right-wing radicalism, racially-based radicalism, religion-based radicalism. When you create an economic crisis or when you have an economic crisis, the Treaty of Versailles after World War I, And John Kenneth Galbraith came out and said this. If you guys sign this treaty, the punishing sanctions on Germany will force them into World War II. They will create a second war. He was absolutely right. The rise of the fascists came in Germany came out of the punishment of the Treaty of Versailles. And now we've got 40 years of Reaganism has punished the American middle class, gutted the American middle class. And guess what? We've got widespread radicalism. And a piece of the solution, only one piece of the solution, is to try to rebuild the middle class. This time more inclusively. Share the Tom Hartman program with your friends. We're available on SiriusXM, Free Speech TV, Pacifica, commercial stations nationwide, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, on the Tom Hartman app, and you can even tell your smart speaker to listen to the Tom Hartman program. Angela in New York City. Hey, Angela, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I wanted to just talk to you because I'm looking at all this kind of in a state of semi-shock. I just 
feel like the thing is just futile. I mean, we're asking for resignations and impeachments and all of this, and instead, you know, they're using force. I mean, we're not. We're going through legal channels while they're using and threatening force. How are we going to counter this? And do you think, what do you think is going to happen next week? I don't know, Angela. And there is very definitely a threat of force and more. And it's coming from a lot of different quarters. And this is not the way that you change governments. This is not the way you make decisions about who's going to run a country by having lots and lots of people show up with guns. It's just not the way it should happen. It is not a Republican small R, Republican government idea. It is not a small D Democratic government idea. I'm very concerned that there's going to be bloodshed, that that this is going to get worse and worse. And I just have to hope I mean, the one thing that prevents civil wars and insurrections from being successful in developed countries is the force of government. And when Trump withheld the force of government on January 6th, when he withheld that, when he said he and his toadies at DHS, Chad Wolf just resigned, and at the Defense Department, and he's got some, you know, junior 30-year-old running the Defense Department, when those guys said, no, you may not have National Guard troops, you may not have preparation, you may not, you know, That's just a major crime against democracy, and that's how we got where we are right now. It's just crazy, and I hope that they don't do it again. Alfredo in Mountain View, California. Alfredo, what's up? Yeah, Tom, thank you very much. You know, looking at the behavior of Mitch McConnell and Pence doing nothing, absolutely nothing, to Pence not invoking the 25th Amendment and McConnell delaying the Senate to recess until the 19th or saying that he's going to consider the impeachment until a day after the inauguration. This is a complete obstruction of impeachment. And I'll take my answer over the air. Thanks. You're absolutely right. McConnell is obstructing the impeachment process. And just as he obstructed Merrick Garland, just as he obstructed over 100 Obama judges, just as he has obstructed, you know, the Democrats came up with two different major pieces of legislation, the HEROES Act in May, a $3 trillion piece of legislation to help out Americans and reboot those $600 a month payments. And then the Republicans said that's too much money. And so in June, they came up with a second bill. I don't recall that it has a name, but it offered $2 trillion and $300 a week in payments to everybody, and Mitch McConnell refused to consider either one of them. You know, which kind of blew my mind the other night when I was watching Nancy Pelosi being interviewed by, you know, one of the CBS reporters, I think it was Leslie Stahl, and Leslie Stahl said, you stalled this thing for eight or nine months. Why did you do that? And I was just astonished that Pelosi didn't say, we passed two pieces of legislation to get people back on track. And instead, she said this third one, you know, we wouldn't pass it until there was something for our police and things. You know, I get that. But, oh, my God, it's just like the politics of this are just going crazy. Sandra in Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Sandra, what's up? Hi. Well, I've just wondered why they can't do some sort of a fine on right wing media that lies with almost every breath like Trump does and make those fines hefty enough that it's a I got to pay that every time I lie. Maybe I'll not do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the problem is that who decides what's a lie? If the federal government were to take the power to issue fines when people like me on radio or television say things that the federal government decides are not truthful, I think that's a very dangerous road to go down. Can you imagine Donald Trump determining what I'm telling is truthful and what isn't? Well, it wouldn't be up to them. It would be up to what is what can be searchable and proven. 
And uh, well, no, it would be up that. to it would I be mean, up to a federal agency, presumably the Federal Communications Commission, which is well, stocked with Trump appointees. I mean, right now it's Ajit yeah. Pai, you know, the guy who yeah. blew up net neutrality. So, I, you know, I get what you're saying, Sandra, and I absolutely agree. You know, I agree with Kevin Rudd, the former prime minister of Australia. Rupert Murdoch destroyed the political balance and dialogue. He called Murdoch a cancer on Australian democracy in Australia. Yeah. Then he moved to the UK and he did the same thing to the UK. Then he moved to the United States and he did the same thing to the United States. And we are paying yeah. the price for that. I absolutely agree on all points on that. But I don't want my government to have the power to tell me or Sean Hannity what to say or, or fine us yeah. if we don't say the right thing or if we fail to say the right thing. It's just yeah. a real tough one. These are the challenges of a democracy. Sandra, thank you for the call. And thank you for watching us on YouTube. David in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, David, what's up? The United States is an empire. The Roman Empire was an empire. The Greeks was a, an empire. And the basic problem with those two empires that I just mentioned, the Greeks and the Romans, they destroyed themselves from within. Greed, misrepresenting to the people what they wanted to do. The big money people of those empires destroyed themselves from within. Theoretically, I think, if we continue down this path we're on right now, like Plato and Socrates said, we're going to destroy ourselves from within unless we can figure out. Well, Socrates how- actually participated in that. He, he participated in the revolution of the 400 or was it 300 and the revolution of the 40 or the 30, the small, the elite one. Socrates had never been a fan of democracy. He was very skeptical of it. Plato, eh. But, you know, I get your point. I don't think that we are the Roman Empire. And I think to the extent that America is empire, that's not what is driving this process. That's one of the things that has corrupted this country. That's one of the reasons why we spend more on defense than the next 10 countries combined. That's one of the reasons why our jobs have vanished and gone to other countries. You know, there's a whole lot to say about American empire, but American empire was just as real 10 years ago when, or 15 years ago when we elected Barack Obama as it is today. This is not that. This is treason got to look at our police force and what they're doing too you know i mean they're they're part of the centurion the roman guard is the uh, military they're the extension of the empire if you want to look at the history of rome and look for parallels the parallel is caesar augustus augustus was the guy who came to power and basically ended any semblance of democracy or of Rome being a republic and turned it into not just an empire, but a brutal empire ruled by a single man. There's a great book about this that actually we had the author on about a year ago. I don't have the title right off the top of my head, but I'm sure if you search for recent history, it, it just came out in the last year. And it's something like Fragile Empire. And it's just brilliant. But, but really, it was a megalomaniac leader that took down Rome. And that's the concern that people have, I think, about Donald Trump. David, thank you for the call. I don't think we need to look for ancient historical analogs. I think there's plenty of recent historical analogs that we can look at. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny by Edward J. Watts. This is from the first chapter, which I think is really more like an introduction. This book explains why Rome, still one of the longest lived republics in world history, 
traded the liberty of political autonomy for the security of autocracy. It's written at a moment when modern readers need to be particularly aware of both the nature of the republics and the consequences of their failure. We live in a time of political crisis when the structures of republics as diverse as the United States, Venezuela, France, and Turkey are threatened. Many of these republics are the constitutional descendants of Rome, and as such, they have inherited both the tremendous structural strengths that allowed the Roman Republic to thrive for so long, and some of the same structural weaknesses that led eventually to its demise. This is particularly true of the United States, a nation whose basic constitutional structure was deliberately patterned on the idealized view of the Roman Republic presented by the second century BC author Polybius. This conscious borrowing from Rome's model makes it vital for all of us to understand how Rome's Republic worked, what it achieved, and why, after nearly five centuries, its citizens ultimately turned away from it and toward the autocracy of Augustus. No republic is eternal. It lives only as long as its citizens want it. And in both the 21st century AD and the 1st century BC, when a republic fails to work as intended, its citizens are capable of choosing the stability of autocratic rule over the chaos of a broken republic. When freedom leads to disorder and autocracy promises a functional and responsive government, even citizens of an established republic can become willing to set aside long-standing principled objections to the rule of one man and embrace its practical benefits. Rome offers a lesson about how citizens and leaders of a republic might avoid forcing their fellow citizens to make such a tortured choice. Rome shows that the basic, most important function of a republic is to create a political space that is governed by laws, fosters compromise, shares government responsibility among a group of representatives, and rewards good stewardship. Politics in such a republic should not be a zero-sum game. The politician who wins a political struggle may be honored, but one who loses should not be punished. The Roman Republic did not encourage its leaders to seek complete and total political victory. It was not designed to force one side to accept everything the other wanted. Instead, it offered tools that, like the American filibuster, served to keep the process of political negotiation going until a mutually agreeable compromise was found. This process worked very well in Rome for centuries, but it worked only because most Roman politicians accepted the laws and norms of the Roman Republic. They committed to working out their disputes in the political arena that the Republic established rather than through violence in the streets. Republican Rome succeeded in this more than perhaps any other state before or since. If the early and middle centuries of Rome's Republic show how effective this system can be, the last century of the Roman Republic reveals the tremendous dangers that result when political leaders cynically misuse their consensus, these consensus-building mechanisms to obstruct a republic's functions. Like politicians in modern republics, Romans could use vetoes to block votes on laws. They could claim the presence of unfavorable religious conditions to annul votes they disliked. And they could deploy other parliamentary tools to slow down or shut down the political process if it seemed to be moving too quickly toward an outcome that they disliked. When used as intended, these tools help promote negotiations and political compromises by preventing majorities from imposing solutions on minorities. But in Rome, as in our world, politicians could also employ such devices to prevent the Republic from doing what its citizens needed. The widespread misuse of these tools offered the first signs of sickness in Rome's Republic. Much more serious threats to Republics appear when arguments between politicians spill out from the controlled environments of representative assemblies 
and degenerate into violent con confrontations between ordinary people in the streets. Romans had avoided political violence for three centuries before a series of political murders rocked the Republic in the 130s and 120s BC. Once mob violence infected Roman politics, however, the institutions of the Republic quickly lost their ability to control the contexts and content of political disputes. Within a generation of the first political assassination in Rome, politicians had begun to arm their supporters and use the threat of violence to influence the votes of assemblies and the elections of magistrates. Within two generations, Rome fell into civil war. And two generations later, Augustus ruled as Roman emperor. When the Republic lost the ability to regulate the rewards given to political victors and the punishments inflicted on the losers of political conflicts, Roman politics became a zero-sum game in which the winner reaped massive rewards and the losers often paid with their lives. Above all else, the Roman Republic teaches the citizens of its modern descendants the incredible dangers that come along with condoning political obstruction and courting political violence. Roman history could not more clearly show that when citizens look away as their leaders engage in these corrosive behaviors, the Republic is in mortal danger. Unpunished political dysfunction prevents consensus and encourages violence. In Rome, it eventually led Romans to trade the Republic for the security of an autocracy. This is how a Republic dies, mortal Republic. Thanks so much for being with us today and uh, throughout the week. Thanks to Louise, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Halbert, Dave Fulton, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Strauss, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, and Jabbermocky, all the folks working on this show. Thank you and thank you for being with us. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.